The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, which is God's grace provision to allow us to recover from any sin in our life so that we can uh, be restored to fellowship so that the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit is re-engaged to produce spiritual growth in our life. Help us to understand the Word and see how it applies to our lives. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come together in freedom to study your word, that we have your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that as we seek to grapple with the issues that face us on a day-to-day basis, the decisions that we, that we face, the large decisions, the momentous decisions, as well as the seemingly inconsequential decisions, that we have a sure guide in your word, that as the psalmist said, it is in your light that we see light, and you guide and direct us through your word and through God the Holy Spirit, who fills us with your word and uses that word to guide and direct us. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study this evening on divine guidance, decision-making, and your will, that you would help us to understand these things, put them together, that we may have a more accurate understanding of how to live our spiritual life today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've been covering divine guidance, decision-making, knowing the will of God for two weeks. So far, I have developed uh, nine points. If you don't have those first nine points, that's okay. You can get the DVD or the tape, and you can pick up on it. The ninth point was pretty much what we covered last week, and that was just examples from the Old Testament and some from the New Testament on uh, how to uh, how decision making was done. And we looked at the example of Gideon as someone who was known, who was told what the will of God was when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and gave him specific direction as to what he should do. And then he goes through the episode of putting out the fleece. That wasn't to find out what God wanted him to do. That was to try to trip God up and to, so he could avoid 
doing what God told him to do. And then we had the example of Jonah. Again, another negative example. Uh, Jonah wanted to uh, heard what God wanted him to do. God specifically told him to go to Nineveh. And he decided that uh, he wanted to exercise his volition to go in the opposite direction. And so he took off and headed west instead of east. And God prepared a special uh, aquatic taxi for him to bring him back to the right location. He had to uh, put, put a little pressure on him to, to uh, get his will in the right direction. See, God doesn't manipulate the will. He just knows where the pressure points are that get us to respond freely to his motivation. Either that or I guess he would have just spent the rest of whatever few days he had in the belly of the fish. Then we looked at some examples in Abraham. We looked at some examples in the New Testament in Acts chapter 15 specifically, uh, which we'll come back to uh, again tonight. That is such a crucial uh, paradigm in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council that here you have apostles gathered together to make a crucial decision in relationship to whatever mandates were going to be placed upon uh, the Gentiles that were now coming into the church. We lose sight of what a radical thing this was for these, uh, these, well, you had the 12 Jewish apostles now because the apostle Paul has joined their ranks. You have the 12 Jewish apostles, you have Barnabas, you have a few other church leaders and pastors, and they all gather together to deal with this doctrinal issue that they've never had to wrestle with before because up to this point, whatever uh, organization of believers that they're familiar with has always just included uh, Jews. And God has been working through Jews all through the Old Testament since the call of Abraham, and now there is this new organism that has come into being known as the church. And it's been obvious to them since Acts chapter 10 when God revealed the vision to Peter to take the gospel to to, uh, the Gentile Roman centurion Cornelius and to give him the gospel that the Gentiles were coming into the church on an equal footing with Jews. That had never happened before. So now these leaders of the church have to make decisions. What what do we do? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to uh, follow any of the Mosaic law? Uh, what requirements should we place upon these uh, Gentiles, as Paul will later call them in, in uh, Romans chapter 11, these wild olive branches? What are we going to do with them? And so they had to make some momentous decisions. And you would think that a decision that that's important, that's that crucial, is a decision that they would go to prayer and wait for God the Holy Spirit to reveal His will to them. But that's not how it works. It's not an overt uh, revelation from the Holy Spirit that takes place in Acts chapter 15. And we looked at the, the, the way it's described in the Scripture that they argued all day back and forth. They weighed the issues. They talked about what uh, the Scriptures taught in the Old Testament. They talked about what had been revealed uh, to Peter. Peter w- reviewed the revelation that God had given him in Acts chapter 10 and what had transpired with the household of Cornelius. And they go back through all this doctrine and they, they look at the pros and the cons and weigh out the, the different sides, and then they come to a conclusion. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And then they come to a conclusion, and they express that in the verbiage, it seemed good to us. In other words, once they laid out the parameters of doctrine, then they realize where that was leading them in terms of the kind of decision they they should make. They didn't need to require circumcision. They would have said circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. They're not under Abraham, so we don't need to require that. But there there are some other problems here. They coming from a Gentile background and a pagan background, they have some other issues that would relate to some things that were covered in the Noahic Covenant, which, of course, was for all of mankind. And so they wanted to make sure that they stayed away from eating meat that was uh, sacrificed to the idols of the temple, and they stayed away from sexual immorality. And, and so it was just that encouragement. But it's a conclusion that's reached from looking at doctrine. And so I pointed out last time that this is what we call a wisdom approach to decision-making in contrast to what is often presented as the way to learn God's will is the idea that God always has a specific thing for you to do or a specific place for you to be, a specific job for you to have that that you need to be living in the center of God's will. And so that view is, is diagrammed the way I have it up on the chart that there's a circle that defines the parameters of God's will. But if you really want that blessing, that happiness, you want to make sure that your decisions uh, don't fall apart on you, then you have to live in the center of God's will. And so there's a tremendous amount of uh, soul-searching that goes on in this process. If you've bought into this view of decision-making, then you sit around and you spend a lot of time in prayer, contemplating your navel, waiting somehow for God the Holy Spirit to move you in terms of some kind of vibration or some kind of inner peace or however it's expressed. Uh, and, and let me tell you, evangelicals have gotten good at trying to express this in ways so it doesn't sound as egregious as it really is. Because what they're doing is they're waiting for some kind of special revelation to, to occur. And we live in an age when there is no special revelation. God has been silent since the close of the canon in 95 A.D. There is no more special revelation. And that's not something that's unique in history. After that great Italian prophet Malachi in the Old Testament uh, wrote his book, um, Malachi was the last prophet, and that closed out the Old Testament canon. God was silent. There's a great book by uh, uh, Robert Anderson, Sir Robert Anderson, who wrote a classic work on the uh, coming prince, which had to do with Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, but a little-known work that he uh, produced was one called The Silence of God, in which he showed that once God finishes his purpose in, in providing revelation, he is silent. And it focuses primarily on that period of silence from God that occurred from approximately 420, 430 B.C. when Malachi wrote up to that revelation by uh, the angel to uh, Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a child. And that preceded the announcement to Mary and the announcement to Joseph. That was the first time there was any special revelation for a period of about 400 years. God was silent. And there's a reason that God is silent. He's given the information. It's now 
the opportunity for believers to utilize that information, to learn that information, to meditate on what God has revealed and take that and apply that to whatever circumstances, situation, decision-making that is present in their life. That's what God wants us to do is to know that word and to take it and extrapolate principles from it to apply to our life, to think about it, to be engaged intellectually with his revelation so that we can then make decisions. What we want to do in intellectual laziness is let God make the decision for us, and then when things go sour, well, it's just God's will. What would you just do? You just blame God for your lousy decision. You don't want to accept responsibility for making a bad decision, if indeed it was a bad decision. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that God often allows us, and it's often uh, actively God's will for us to go a certain course, and the consequences are not going to be what we would hope them to be. You may... uh, uh, it may be God's will for you to take a certain job. Every option, cl- every door closes. There's no other alternative, and you lose your job here or whatever they're going to offer you. is just You know that's not what you want to do. But yet another job opens in another company or another job opens in another part of the state or another city, and you, just, you know there's, there's just nothing else that you can do, so you go that direction. And you, you pray about it, and you seek counsel from friends, and you go through the whole process of uh, sound decision-making, and it's a good decision. And then a year later, you lose your job, and you're stuck halfway across the country, away from your family and your friends, and the church where, the, where you grew up, and you don't have a job. Well, see, that was God's plan, because that's the test. And so we often evaluate decisions on the basis of what happens later on, and think, well, if uh, if it doesn't uh, if it doesn't work out, or there's a problem, or if things fall apart, then I must have missed God's will. I, I'm not in the center of God's will. I remember when I was going through the process of making the decision as to whether or not to move back to Houston uh, from Connecticut and come down here and pastor this church. And I went, had gone through the process. I'm looking at the clear mandates in Scripture related to various responsibilities. For example, I, I felt very strongly about my responsibility to be close at hand because of uh, family responsibilities, uh, not only for uh, my family, but also for my in-laws, and they're getting older and health problems. And uh, it's, it's very difficult when you're 2,000 miles away to deal with that. And that last year before I came down here, I think I made... 15 trips to Houston. And so you begin to weigh all these different factors and and I'm going through the pros and the cons and just what is a wise decision here. And I was uh, discussing it. I discussed it a lot with my good friend Jim Myers and we would uh, go through the pros and cons and I laid out my case and he said, what you have to remember is that you've made a, you've made the decision from the right motivation for the right purpose You've worked through all the factors, and even if you go down there and things don't work out, it's a good decision. And see, people often have problems with that because we think a good decision is one that produces 
uh, prosperity and greater uh, parent stability in our lives and those kinds of things, whether, whether then the fact that God may really be testing our whole decision-making process, we pass the test, we make the decision according to all the right canons of decision-making, we pray about it, we put it in the Lord's hands, we take counsel from mature believers, we take into account every factor uh, that's possible, that, that we can possibly learn, and then, you know, things go sour. Well, that doesn't mean it was a bad decision. It's just put us in a, the next place God wanted us to be in order to give us, uh, give us a further test. So we have to recognize that God is not there to be a magic genie to take the place of our personal uh, decisions and responsibilities so that we can ha- make easy decisions and not have to go through those those tests. The decision-making process is as much a part of the test as anything else. Are we going to learn to sift through the Word, to meditate on the Word, to, to pray and be in an attitude of dependence upon God and His direction in our life, or are we just going to sit back and hope that somehow God's going to short-circuit the thought process and just give us the answer? And too often that's, that's what happens. So we looked at this in terms of the, the, the problem that is often presented in terms of living in the center of God's will. And we talked about different kinds of will that, that, we talk, that theologians talk about. God's sovereign will uh, includes everything that he has decreed that will take place in history. This does not absolve man of human responsibility. We don't know what those decisions are. God's sovereignty clearly includes the free exercise of volition on the part of his creatures. It's not a fatalistic concept, which is what usually comes across in various uh, forms of Calvinism. But God's sovereign will is unknowable. Then we have a second category, God's moral or revealed will, and this includes all of the statutes, the mandates, the prohibitions that we find in Scripture, all of the imperatives that we find in the Bible. This is what God has revealed that we should do, and we've looked at a number of those, and that defines the parameter of God's revealed will. But see, sometimes we're living in God outside of God's revealed will because we're making bad decisions based in living according to our sin nature. We're in God's sovereign will, but we're not in God's moral will. And so when we confess our sins and we're back in fellowship and we're basing decisions on God's uh, word, then we're living in that overlap zone where we're walking by means of the Spirit, we're in fellowship, we're applying the Word, we're giving thanks for all things, we're praying without ceasing, we're uh, loving one another as Christ loved the church, and all those different things that, that define God's moral will, and it's also within God's sovereign will. So we're in that shaded area between the two overlap circles. So there's three things that I have here on slides that focus our what we've covered so far. First of all, that the specifics of God's decreed will are secret, they're unrevealed, and they're unknown. God hasn't told us what's going to happen tomorrow. So when you face the decisions tomorrow, you are not being affected by God in any way other than God the Holy Spirit is bringing doctrine to bear in our thinking, and it's our volition how we're going to apply it or not. And whatever happens is what God uh, has permitted to happen or allowed to happen, 
And so the only way we can know God's decreed will is what happens in history. Once it happens, then we know what God's will was. So we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will, what he has told us to do, what he has uh, mandated. That So this moral will includes all the precepts, mandates, and prohibitions that are, are in the Scriptures. Conclusion, since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will before the fact, questions about the will of God. How do I know God's will? What is God's will? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I buy this? Should I buy that? Should I marry this person or marry that person? Or should I marry this person or not get married? Should I get married at all or stay single? Uh, these questions, uh, which we often bring up, how do I know God's will, are really questions that relate to wisdom because they don't relate to revealed information. God hasn't told you you need to live in Bel Air, not in Spring Branch. Of course, there's ways in which God tells you certain things like that. You know when you look at your bank account that it's not God's will for you to live uh, over in Bel Air because you can't afford to pay $500,000 for a a lot. So that's one of the ways God sort of channels us along is what he provides for us in terms of jobs and finances and all of those different things. And that all has to be factored in to the equation that we use to come to a conclusion in decision-making. So the idea that I'm presenting here is the idea that we are to live within God's revealed will. That means we have to know what that revealed will is. We have to know the Old Testament. We have to know the New Testament. We have to, the, the Old Testament is so often overlooked and untaught But the Old Testament gives us the the flesh and blood life stories that illustrate the principles that are so clearly expressed in the New Testament. And when you bring the two together, then you can look at the Old Testament and gain a greater understanding of how the the doctrine is applied in different circumstances and different situations. So the circle here... describes all of the parameters of God's revealed will, the prohibitions, the mandates, uh, the uh, encouragement that, that the Word has that we should do certain things and not do other things. And as long as we're operating inside that circle, then we're in the will of God. We have to recognize that many decisions have no right or wrong answer. They they don't take us outside the moral or the revealed will of God. They're determined, the decision is determined through wisdom and prayer. And what underlies and sort of wraps around the whole decision-making process is that promise in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that we trust in the Lord with all our heart, lean not on our own understanding, and all our ways acknowledge him, and he will direct our paths. That as we look at a circumstance, we evaluate all the pros and cons in the decision-making. We commit, this, commit it to the Lord. We trust in the Lord. And we make a decision based on what appears to be the wise course of action. Now, where do you get wisdom? Ah, there's the rub. See, don't confuse wisdom with common sense. See, the common sense that you've picked up through your life is a hodgepodge of human viewpoint as well as divine viewpoint. 
it's a, it's a mixture of, of old wives' tales and, and uh, cultural concepts and your own experience and a little bit of the Word of God thrown in there and some uh, popular uh, religious notions, but it's not necessarily the same as divine viewpoint wisdom. Uh, the Jews in the Old Testament understood the importance of wisdom. When they divided up the Old Testament canon, they split it up into three parts. There was the Torah or the instruction for life. Torah really doesn't mean law in the same sense that we think of law. We think of it includes that, but it's more than that. The word Torah at its root core meaning has to do with instruction. And it's the instruction for life. And so you have the Torah, the first five books of Moses, which is the foundation for the Old Testament. And then you have a, another set of books, the prophets, the major prophets, minor, uh, the, uh, excuse me, the former prophets and the latter prophets. And they deal with the history of Israel and the application, how, how the law was applied by God in the outworking of history in Israel in terms of their obedience or disobedience in relation to the blessing and cursing promises in the law. But then you had this other set of Old Testament books that were called the writings. And these were wisdom books. Wisdom books because they addressed very practical areas of life. For example, you have two books that deal with the whole issue of undeserved suffering and, and how you as a believer are to respond to undeserved suffering and God's sovereign role in, in the background in, in undeserved suffering. And you have the book of Ruth, which deals with the fact that here you start off with Naomi and she loses her husband and she loses her two sons and she has cursing in her life. There is judgment. There's discipline, whether it's discipline or not, but there, her life is miserable. It's woe is me. And then at the end of the book, she, because of Ruth, her daughter-in-law now has a new husband, Boaz, uh, who's a kinsman redeemer. It's a picture of redemption. Redemption is what turns cursing into blessing. And at the end of the book, Naomi is blessed, and she has children that are raised up in her husband's name, uh, through the concept of levered marriage with Boaz, and you have all the different generations that come from Ruth and Boaz leading up to David, who, of course, is the great king. So the whole of Ruth is about uh, blessing or cursing being turned into blessing. Job deals with what's going on in terms of the angelic conflict and the background behind uh, suffering and that we often don't know and will never know why we go through the tests or the crises or the suffering that we go through because our finite minds just can't factor all the data. We just have to trust God. Then you have the Psalms, and in many of the Psalms you have wisdom Psalms that express wisdom in uh, the living of life. Proverbs in Song of Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon deals with wisdom in, in love, sex, and marriage. And then you have uh, Ecclesiastes, and which points out the failure of human wisdom. And so then you have Daniel. Daniel is also a wisdom book because it's dealing with how uh, these young Jewish boys who've been trained up as Orthodox uh, believers following the Mosaic Law are now living in a pagan culture, and they have to learn to apply what they know in a world that is is completely encased in paganism, and they're being uh, told to eat different kinds of food and do different things, and and so they are, they have to learn to apply doctrine. So wisdom is not common sense. Wisdom is learning how to take the Word of God and produce something of value, something that is skillful in life to produce a a life uh, of beauty that glorifies glorifies God. 
So last time we looked at that point nine. You can renumber your notes any way you want to if you weren't here the last couple of times. But the ninth point was these examples of God's specific individual will. Tenth point is what I've been describing in a broad sense the last ten minutes or so is that knowing God's will is based on what I call the grace learning spiral. That God the Holy Spirit teaches us doctrine and through that, through the doctrine, He guides and leads us. It is never apart from the objective Word of God. It is always through the Word of God. And we have this confusion that I'm dealing with on um, excuse me, on uh, uh, Thursday nights. This concept is, is the leading of the Holy Spirit the same as divine guidance. And where we're going to go with that is, no, it's not. It's something different. And yet too often in popular Christianity, we, when we see that word, the leading of the Holy Spirit, we automatically think of divine guidance. And there have been many theologians and many Bible teachers who've taken that. And that's why I want to take a lot of time to look at the context that surrounds the two uses of that phrase in Romans 8:14 and Galatians 5:18 to show that that neither passage, neither context is dealing with divine guidance. It's talking about the whole methodology, the whole mechanic, the whole procedure of living the Christian life on the basis of uh, the supernatural ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our life, which is not divine guidance. It has to do with the dynamic of the spiritual life and spiritual growth itself. But what undergirds this is understanding this process. And so I have um, some verses to lay out here, and then we'll look at at a chart. Uh, Actually, let's see. Here's a chart. This circle pictures what's going on in your head, in your mind. The Greek call it the noose. There's a couple of different words that gr- the Greek text use, use to describe what's happening inside the thinking part of the soul. The noose describes the thinking as a whole, and at the core of your thinking, the Scripture uses this word cardia. And cardia is not talking, it's never used in the Scriptures to talk about that thing that's beating in the middle of your chest. There's not one use in Old Testament or New Testament where it refers to the physical organ that is pumping and circulating blood in your body. It just isn't used that way, not ever. And so if it's never used that way physically or literally in the literature, then we can't build, when it uses heart as a metaphor... For what's going on in your soul, you can't use it metaphorically to describe something that there's no example of in the Scripture. See, if you're going to say that the core issue here has to do with beating and circulation, you have to be able to show somewhere where that is a concept that's used in the literature. It's never used literally that way. So we have to look and say, okay, what's the analogy here? What's the metaphor mean? And the metaphor is that heart is used in the Old Testament, New Testament to describe fundamentally the core of the soul, what is at the center of your thinking, what is driving your thinking. And so 
The scripture talks about the heart as the center. And we use it that way all the time. We think of, we talk about the heart of a matter. We talk about hearts of palms. We use it all the time to refer to the center of something, that which is at its very core, that which is uh, most significant. About 90% of the time in the Old Testament, the word, the word lave actually in the Hebrew refers to thinking, not emotion. And, and yet what happens so often today is people think that heart has to do with emotion. There's a few places where the word heart has to do with volition and choosing. There's a couple of places where it's clear it does have to do with emotion. But in 90 to 95% of the uses of cardia in the, Old Te- in the New Testament, lave in the Old Testament, it refers to the thinking part of the soul. So heart has to do with what's going on inside your your cranium, what's going on inside your head when you are thinking about something and making decisions and applying doctrine in life. And we all make hundreds and hundreds of decisions every day. So the process, how do we get the Word of God into the center of our thinking? Well, pastor teaches, and through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who fills us with doctrine, when we look at Ephesians 5.18, we're, to be, we're commanded to be filled by means of the Spirit. That's the operation that he's doing. He's filling us. But what is he filling us with? Well, we compare that to Colossians 3, uh, 16, and we realize that, that the results in Colossians 3, 17 and following and the results in Ephesians 5, 19 and following are the same. So if these two different mandates produce this identical results, then those two mandates must be related to one another. And the mandate in Ephesians 5.18 is to be filled by means of the Spirit. And the mandate in Colossians 3.16 is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell where? Within you. So what are you being filled with? You're being filled with the Word of God, not with more of the Holy Spirit. It's the idea of, uh, of taking, a, uh, taking a picture of, uh, that's filled with some content. And if, you, if you're talking about getting more of the Spirit, that's how a lot of people take filling of the Spirit. You're going to get more of the Spirit. But see, you're already indwelt with the Spirit. You're not going to get any more of the Spirit. You already have all you're going to get. But now He's going to operationally fill you up with something. So you can be filled by means of the pitcher, or you can be filled with water. Water would be content. And the way Greek expresses the content of the filling is it usually uses a genitive. But we don't have a genitive in Ephesians 5.18. We have a dative. Dative describes what you're using to fill something up with. So when you get up in the morning, you fill your coffee cup with by means of the coffee pot. The coffee pot is the means of getting the coffee into your cup so you can get it into your body and wake up. It's means, it's, it's the instrument that you, God uses the Holy Spirit to fill us up with the Word. We can't learn the Word apart from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't operate apart from His Word. They work in tandem, and you can't separate them. You, you, you don't have one without the other. If you learn the Word without the Holy Spirit, you just have a lot of academic knowledge. And there's a lot of folks who have academic knowledge about the Bible, and they're not even saved. I mean, there's a ten-volume work that's... Uh, often uh, referenced in Greek studies, called the uh, edited by uh, uh, Kittle, and it's uh, called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And I'd say that 
probably 70% of the Greek scholars that wrote articles in there are not saved. They're 19th century, early 20th century, classic liberals. And they don't believe that Christ died as a substitute for their sins. They don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. But this is their field there. In Europe, it's a, it's a respected occupation and profession to be a biblical scholar. So a lot of people go into the field of biblical scholarship, and they don't know anything, and they die without knowing anything about uh, the grace of God. But they do some uh, very helpful work in places, but you have to be careful. So the Holy Spirit fills us up with His Word, and as we listen to the pastor, we have to, of course, exercise our volition just to be there, just to come and sit and study the Word and to learn the Word. That has to be a priority. Every day we have to make those decisions. Is the Word of God going to be a priority today? Am I going to remind myself that I am a child of God and a family of God, and I need to learn how to think like God? And so we have to exercise our volition. And as we do that, we, t- we learn the Word, it becomes, first of all, academic knowledge. Uh, everything is academic knowledge initially. You learned uh, algebra, you learned geometry, you learned all these concepts as, as academic information. And then one day you had to balance a checkbook and you suddenly realized that all that math had a practical value. And you are you got into mechanical uh, drawing when you were in junior high or high school, and you suddenly realized that that geometry had some practical application. And now all of a sudden, it wasn't just academics anymore. It it had real meaning and significance. Well, that's what happens in the process of learning. We learn things first as academic knowledge, and then when we believe it under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and we say, yes, I, I don't just, I can't, it's not just that I can regurgitate what the pastor said, but that I really understand what it means, and I believe it. You can't believe what you don't understand, and there's too many Christians running around who who picked up all kinds of phrases and, and verbiage and jargon from various different pastors uh, of all stripes and kinds and everything, and they think they know something about the Bible because they, they use this jargon. But that doesn't mean they understand anything. It just means that they manage to learn the vocabulary. But once you can express things in your own words, and it's clear that you understand uh, what is said, and there's different levels of understanding. And we all know every time I go back and I re- study through some doctrine that I've studied for years, certain things that I thought I understood, I now, you know, it's sort of like a light bulb goes off, and there's another level of understanding. So this is progressive. Uh, that's how learning takes place. So we believe it. We, this is the Word of God. I believe it. God, the Holy Spirit, then transfers it into our thought as epinosis. See, epi is an intensifier. It's a preposition in Greek. It's a uh, set as a prefix on the word gnosis to indicate it is a full knowledge. And so this becomes, is, is placed in the storehouse of the core of our thinking. And so now it becomes usable spiritual knowledge. And the more we learn, the more there's this storehouse of doctrine there that creates a, a matrix of, of knowledge and doctrine that we can draw upon in various different circumstances. The more you learn, the more you know, the larger the storehouse. And, and then when you face various crises, all of a sudden God the Holy Spirit starts pulling these different things out that are stored there, and you're able to make a decision 
an application, and that's where this concept of chokmah, the Hebrew word chokmah, meaning wisdom or skill, comes into play. It has to do with the application of this this uh, knowledge that you've got. We, we Many of us have gone through this. I don't know about you, but my mother had me taking piano lessons when I was when I was eight years old. And I took piano lessons for about eight years. And I could sit down and I could read music and I could play the piano, but uh, and I could play pretty well, but there's other people who have much more ability and they would take those those foundational principles of music and then they could sit down and they could really play. And and what they were producing was something that had tremendous uh, beauty and skill and artistry because their level of application certainly went beyond uh, what I, I would just basically operate on a little academic knowledge and a lot of practice. And practice is key, though, before you can ever develop any kind of wisdom because you have to practice those spiritual skills and application. And as you practice more and more and it becomes second nature to you in any field of life, then eventually you become proficient at it and then you begin to get to that point where you can do something well and produce something of value and something of artistry. And that is what application is when it comes to wisdom. And the more you know in that storehouse of epinosis doctrine in your soul, then when you face issues, crises, challenges in life, or you need to make decisions, whatever it might be, then that's what what you do. Now, in light of that, if I can find it, I had an email this last week, a question related to the application of these things that I've been teaching. And here's the question. When faced with a choice that has no clear biblical reference, in other words, there's not a thou shalt or the thou shalt not related to it. When faced with a choice that has no clear biblical reference, like which house I should buy. So you have to decide whether you, you found two or three houses. They're all in your price range. You can, uh, you can get a loan. They're all, uh, they're all acceptable. Now you have a decision to make. How do I decide which one I should, I should buy? Uh, well, the question goes on to say, okay, you've got a decision to make. There's no clear biblical reference. Will God's will be made clear by the subsequent elimination of all the wrong options? No. See, God's not going to make a decision for you. Now, there might be, a if God does have a specific place for you to live, then he will eliminate those other options. They'll fall through. You'll make an offer. The seller will say, and no way, I've already got an offer. You'll, you'll be five minutes too late with your offer, and they've already accepted something. Something like that will happen. We've had those things. We've all experienced something like that. So if God intervenes, then you know that, that he's clearly channeling you in a certain direction. But if not, the test is... Okay, now I really have to make a responsible decision here. I have to weigh these options. And this is what you do. We all are familiar with this. Uh, when we think about how we're going to uh, invest money for retirement, what stocks are we going to buy? We go in and we do all of our homework and what mutual funds should we put it in. Or the, whatever the decision is, we know that the way we go about it is not to sit in, in our closet and pray and meditate and wait for liver quiver to take place. We have to investigate all of the options and learn as much as we can so we make a wise and informed decision. But what envelops the whole decision-making process is that we commit it to the Lord in prayer 
and we trust the Lord, and we do the best we can, and we make a decision, and we go forward, trusting that God will direct our paths in the process of decision-making. So there are many areas in life when God may not have a specific will, whether you live in uh, Bel Air or Memorial or River Oaks or Katy or Sugar Land or, or Jersey Village or uh, as long as the decision that you're making is done on the basis of the principles of sound, responsible decision-making related to finances, you may decide, you know, I could live in Bel Air, but I'm going to live out in Sugar Land, and I want to use the extra money that I would spend on a house uh, to support missions, to support a missionary, to support Schaefer Seminary, to support the church. Uh, I want to live in this area because it's closer to, to church, and therefore, I'm not going to have the problem of traffic and all these other things. So you make you, different factors linear in. That's not saying that uh, it's wrong to live 30 minutes away instead of five minutes away, or that it's wrong to uh, utilize the financial resources as God's given you to put into a, a a house that's nicer, larger. I mean, you could use it. You say, okay, it's more than I need, but I can use the extra space that when. Uh, uh, missionaries are coming in, or we have a pastor's conference. i got a place to put people up. I can use this for hospitality. Whatever it is, you make that decision based on the doctrine that's in your soul and then commit it to the Lord and go forward. There may not be any center of God's will in that issue. There's no spe- specific thing there. If there is, God will close the doors. And if there's not, then go right ahead and make the, the best decision that you can based on the information that you have in your soul. Okay, the basic issue, the basic issue that undergirds all of this is that we need to uh, utilize the doctrine that God has provided for us. Romans 12.2 don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I mean, more and more I realize what a central verse this is for everything in the Christian life. It doesn't say to transform your, your emotions. It says to transform your mind. You have to think about it. I started developing an analogy a few weeks ago about culture. And as I've thought more about this, to realize we've shifted culture. The instant you were saved, you shifted your culture. You were living, you were born, and you've been living in a human viewpoint pagan culture, and now you're living, uh, you've been born again into the royal family of God, and you have been transported into an eternal divine viewpoint culture. What Paul keeps telling people is you keep living like you're still in the old culture and you have to learn a whole new set of norms and standards and values and thinking within the framework of this new culture. It would be as if you were, were suddenly transported from Houston, Texas and dropped down in a village of 300 people in some northwestern province of China and you weren't ever going to see another uh, American or English-speaking person again for the rest of your life. You'd have to learn a whole new language, all new customs, all new sets of, of etiquette. You would have to learn uh, different skills for work, everything. And and the better you, and the more time you gave to it, and the more you concentrated on it, the better it would be. But if you sat there and you said, you know, I'm living over here in some backwater village in China, but I want to do things like I did back in America. 
what's going to happen? You're just going to have all kinds of turmoil in your life. But see, that's what happens with Christians. We resist learning to think in terms of this new divine viewpoint culture. And it is a major overhaul of everything in our life. And that's what Romans 12.2 is talking about. So the key issue is to have our thinking renewed. And that happens according to the process uh, outlined in the uh, grace learning spiral. Ephesians 5.17 says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, what's the next verse? This is Ephesians 5.17. 5.18 says, Don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled by means of the Spirit. So that's how we understand the will of the Lord, is through the study of God's Word in right relationship to the Holy Spirit. He makes it clear to us, and we go through that process. Ephesians 6.6, 6, Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers. This is talking about how we should, uh, the work ethic of believers but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So even if you're working for some uh, no-good, rotten, irresponsible uh, boss, employer who's operating on some form of uh, uh, paganism, and even though there's a lot of conflict, and even though he may not be as capable as you are, we don't ultimately work for whoever that immediate human boss is. We, Whatever you're doing, you're working for the Lord in that job. This gives you a doctrine of labor uh, that you can apply to whatever your uh, job is, whatever your career is, whatever your profession is. You're ultimately, you think in terms of going to work every day, not for yourself, but you're serving the Lord in that particular, in that particular role. That's God's will for your life. And then the verse that I keep referring to, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, that is, with all your thinking. It's not talking about uh, generating some sort of emotion here. It's talking about trusting, believing that God is involved in my life and in my decision-making so that He's working covertly. Come back to that analogy I used a couple of weeks ago. It's like... Uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, in my life, is analogous to a program on a computer that's running in the background. Uh, you're, you've got this thing running in the background. It's doing certain things. It's, uh, for example, uh, like some of the virus uh, uh, protection devices on a computer. They're running on the background constantly checking things. You don't see it. You don't observe it. You're doing other things, but it's there in the background, always guarding and protecting, watching. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. It's not an overt thing, so you're not talking to the Holy Spirit. You're not waiting for the Holy Spirit to, to give you vibrations or to move you in a particular direction. You, you just know that if you're in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit program is running in the background and it's taking care of uh, things in an indirect manner. And all your ways acknowledge him, that's our volition, and he makes your path straight. He's the one that, if you decide to go to uh, Dallas instead of Denver, and God wants you to go to Denver, he'll straighten that path right out, and Dallas will disappear, and, and Denver will be the only option. Psalm 32.8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is direct revelation, and it's through the word of God. Uh, so all of that relates to the importance of that process 
of the grace learning spiral where doctrine becomes the foundation in our soul. Okay, point number 11. Point number 11 is we learn doctrine and the Holy Spirit stores. Uh, as we learn doctrine, the Holy Spirit operates in this covert manner like a program on a computer running in the background. He does two things. The first is retention. He is the one who's taking that doctrine and storing it in your soul. And you may forget things consciously, but then something comes up and you hit some situation, all of a sudden some verse, some principle pops up into your head, and that's the Holy Spirit who's bringing that up so that, uh, uh, so that you are reminded of what the principles are to make a decision. And so he brings it to your thinking in recall, and then it's your decision whether or not you're going to apply the doctrine here or just do things your own way. So the Holy Spirit's the divine retrieval agent who constantly reminds us of the truth and application. Twelfth, along with specific doctrine for a specific situation, there's also the accumulation of doctrine in the soul which produces skill as a result of practice. It's practice, practice, practice. Practice doesn't make perfect, though. Perfect practice makes perfect. See, if you practice it wrong all the time, you're just going to do it wrong. And what do we practice? We practice the basic spiritual skills. When we sin, we keep short accounts. We confess our sins. We recover fellowship with the Lord. We walk by means of the Holy Spirit, tantamount to abiding in Christ, uh, living according to the Spirit. We're going to tie all these things together in our series that we're doing on Thursday night. Uh, we live according to the Spirit. They walk by the Spirit. That's the second spiritual skill or problem-solving device. Then we have the faith rest drill, where we take the promises of God, mix them with faith in our soul, and apply those to specific situations. Then there's grace orientation and doctrinal orientation and having a personal sense of our eternal destiny, personal love for God, uh, in unconditional love for all mankind, uh, occupation with Christ and uh, personal happiness. All of those, we've studied those many times. We'll study them many more times. Those are the basic skills. You practice them over and over and over again. Just like in the military, you practice certain drills again and again and again and again. In in music, you play those uh, techniques over and over again. You hate them. You resist it. It's it's mind-numbing. But then when all of a sudden you need to perform in that area, you can do it. Because you practice, 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 and, pra- and, and as you do it the right way, then it produces skill, and God the Holy Spirit's working in the background, building strength in your soul, and that's referred to as edification in the Bible. It, it is a process of building something in your life that strengthens, strengthens your soul. So the process is studying the Word, making it a priority, making sure you're in fellowship, and then God the Holy Spirit takes over uh, from then. It's that stored doctrine that gives us the discernment to recognize when some decisions may involve a distinct geographic or operational will from God and when they don't. It's discernment. We're going to hit this in, in, in this paragraph we're dealing with in Hebrews 5, uh, 11 to 15 at the end of uh, on Thursday night is because what's happened there is due to spiritual regression those believers that, that the writer of Hebrews is addressing there have had their senses dulled they have to go back to basics because they haven't been practicing the basics 
And so they have to go back to the basics, and they no longer have the ability to exercise discernment. It's specifically stated in that passage. So what has to happen? They've got to go back through the process and and retrain themselves in terms of the basics of the spiritual life. So we've talked about these terms, geographical will, uh, operational will, uh, God's permissive will. We've seen examples in Jonah and Nineveh and Paul in Rome. And I have one other example that I want to bring up, and that's going to be with our uh, one of the strangest episodes in the Old Testament. And so I'll, we'll stop a little early tonight because I can't get started in Balaam uh, when we're... We have so much to cover in three chapters in Numbers, but we'll cover the will of God in Balaam and see examples of God's uh, revealed will, God's operational will, God's uh, overriding will. All of these are evident in this really bizarre episode with Balaam. You know, that's the guy with the talking ass in, in Numbers. So we'll hit that next week. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word that we know that when we're trusting you, you're working in and through our lives and that you are, you are uh, bringing about that which you desire, which ultimately is that our character is overhauled so that we are in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fathers, we continue to wrestle with issues and decisions in life. Uh, help us to see how the word of God applies that we may make decisions from that storehouse of biblical knowledge that we have in our soul, that we may produce a life of skill and beauty uh, as a result of wisdom that comes only from Bible doctrine. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.